to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to High Truths. You know, you can go to a Justin Bieber concert, or you could come right here to High Truths and meet the rock stars of medicine. And we're going to do that today on this episode. We're also going to talk about drug use in kids. Is drug use inevitable in children? Should the entire field of prevention of drug use simply be a harm reduction approach? And, you know, kids are going to use drugs anyway, and we should just minimize the damage. Does that make sense to you? I would say the tobacco campaign is proof that prevention works. And also the prescription opioid epidemic is proof that prevention works. The prescription epidemic started in 1990 and ended around 2020. It spanned about 30 years with a clear beginning and an end. The beginning happened because of a push on the medical community to prescribe opioids. The end happened with a push on the medical community to minimize and prescribe safely. Perhaps there's another point here, and that government should stay out of the regulation of the doctor-patient relationship, but that's a different discussion. The prescription opioid epidemic followed the principle from Benjamin Franklin, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. While treatment of opioid prescription addiction is essential, the end of the opioid epidemic is attributed to hardcore prevention efforts. Let's hear a question for this episode from a wonderful prevention colleague, Danielle Campbell. Hi, Dr. Lev. As you know, I am a huge fan of you and your contributions to the substance use prevention field, both on a national level and in my community of Butte County, California, a rural community up in Northern California. My name is Danelle Campbell, and I'm the Prevention Services Program Manager for Butte County Behavioral Health. I have been in the prevention field for 30 years now, and I have such a strong passion for developing and implementing programs and services that really improve the lives of youth and families, reduce youth substance use, and improve youth mental and emotional health. Although we have experienced significant success at the local level, part of our ongoing challenge with prevention efforts in general are the social norms that surround young people. They are surrounded by messages like youth substance use is a rite of passage, youth substance use is just an experimental stage, or youth substance use is really not that dangerous. I am interested in hearing your thoughts about effectively shifting these social norms. Thank you very much. Wow, what an engaging question, Danelle. I definitely need expertise to properly answer your question, and I know the perfect expert for this discussion. A physician, psychiatrist, previous national drug czar, the first director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and really a national icon in the field of substance use. And that is Dr. Robert DuPont. Hey, Dr. DuPont, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Ronit. I'm so pleased to be with you. Let me show off a little bit about you. 
for 50 years. Um, you have been a leader in drug abuse prevention and treatment, the very first director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse that was established in 1973. You are our nation's second drug czar under President Nixon and Ford. And at that time, the position was called the White House Drug Chief. And uh, now you are the president of the Institute of Behavior Health, a nonprofit research and policy organization that identifies and promotes powerful new ideas to reduce drug use and addiction. You published, wow, uh, 200 articles, 15 books, and the latest book, you gave me a copy, and I'm so happy to have it on my shelf and to have read it, Chemical Slavery, Understanding Addiction and Stopping the Drug Academic. Um and your uh, journey, uh, educational journey, started at Emory for undergraduate, Harvard Medical School and psychiatric training. And you maintain an active practice in psychiatry and treat anxiety disorder. And I so admire you for being a powerhouse that just goes, 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 um, never stops, keeps up to, up to date, uh, continues to produce. And it's really such an honor to have a rock star like you um, on High Truths. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be with you as a I think about you as a rock star, and I'm really <laughs> proud to be on your uh, program, Dr. Lev. Lev, it's really a, an honor and, a, and and exciting to contribute to uh, to to what you're doing with High Truths. So the question we start with is, how did you get involved in this? I mean, you were a psychiatrist back then. There was no NIDA. There was no drug czar. Um, there, of course, there were people who had addiction. But how did you get involved in, in this issue of drugs and addiction? Uh, well, I, I finished medical school. And in those years, I, I graduated in 1963. Uh, in, That's in the year I was born. There you go. <laughs> The people I work with now, I'm older than their grandparents. Uh, the, uh, in 1963, I, I uh, uh, graduated and uh, I did the training then at Harvard for residency and then at NIH. Uh, and I, so I, every doctor in that era had, during the Vietnam War, had to do two years of service. There was no exception. It wasn't a draft. It was everybody. Uh, and I did the most competitive thing I ever did, which is to get into NIH for my two years. And that put me into Washington, uh, which I had never thought about going to Washington. Uh, and then when I was looking for a job, uh, I remembered that I had worked one day a week at a state prison in Massachusetts, the Norfolk prison, uh, which is where Malcolm X had served his time, a very famous prison. Uh, and uh, I was very interested in prisoners and cor corrections. Uh, and I went to work for the District of Columbia Department of Corrections to keep my family here so we didn't have to move. And in that context, I discovered the heroin epidemic. And then the question was, okay, Dr. DuPont, what do you do about a heroin? an epidemic, and I learned about drug treatment, uh, and uh, that started my career. But you mentioned that I uh, see my patients, and I continue to do that on a regular basis. I consider my patients my greatest teachers, uh, particularly when it comes to addiction. Uh, they have taught me more than any books or any articles that I've ever read. Uh, and if in some cases, I've been working with people over three generations over this period of time. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, I'm grateful to, to all of them. But, so I guess that's a, a short summary of a, 
all kinds of things. You, you mentioned about the drug czar. I think I'm the only person who's known all 17 White House drugs. Lamone and worked with all 17 of the White House drug czars, uh, all 15 people who've had a DEA, and of course, all five heads of NIDA. Now, most of your listeners won't know who any of that gobbledygook means, but those are the federal agencies that handle the drug policy for our country. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And so you started your career as a clinician, and you still are a clinician seeing patients. How was the transition from, you know, being a doctor um, to being a politician when you were the White House drug chief? I don't think about it as a politician, but a bureaucrat, maybe, uh, in in the the White House. Uh, Well, you know, I always, my practice has always been part-time. I've never been, the the main, my main activity has never been my practice. It's always been something else. Now it's my nonprofit organization. So I would see, in those early days, I would see patients on Monday and Thursday nights from 7 to 10 and on Saturday morning. So I never saw any patients during the work week because I was working full-time at various jobs, like Mm -hmm. uh, working for the district government and founding a drug treatment program and then working at at NIDA uh, and in the White House. So I had a day job and my night job and the weekend job was my was my practice. And then when I left the government in uh, 1978, uh, I increased the the practice activity and shifted to include another topic. And that was phobias or anxiety. Uh, And and I've had a very a rich professional experience, a valuable professional experience with anxiety disorders, like agoraphobia, for example, or social anxiety disorders, uh, OCD, these problems. Uh, and I published a lot in those areas too. I was the founding head of the Anxiety Disorders Association of America uh, in 1980. So I've got a whole different life uh, in the anxiety world uh, also. Uh, that has been very important. And of course, there's an overlap uh, between the two, uh, the anxiety problems and, and addiction too. But that's another story for another day. Yeah. Well, well, there is. And and um, yeah, we have ev- other episodes talking about people who have substance disorder are anxious and then they want benzodiazepine and then you get a benzodiazepine use disorder on top of your other things. So yeah, it could be, it could be messy. Um, Let me tell you about that for a second, because the benzodiazepines are a link between my two lives. It has a big role in addiction. It has a big role in anxiety. And one of the things that's very interesting about it is when a doctor prescribes a benzodiazepine to an anxious patient, what does the patient do with that? What 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 happens? Well, typically, when I would say to a patient who doesn't have any experience with benzodiazepines, anxious, and I give them a prescription for Xanax or or Ativan, uh, they're afraid to take it. They come back to me the next time and they haven't even taken it. Finally, I'll get them to take it, and they'll take half a pill. They want to take a whole pill. And then if they stay on it for the rest of their lives, and I got patients who've been on benzodiazepines for forty years, uh, they're taking, like say, Xanax, 0.25 two or three times a day or two or three times a week. That's it. But if you give the benzodiazepines to a drug addict or an alcoholic, they're not going to have trouble taking those pills and they're not going to take 0.25 milligrams. They're going to want the two milligram pills and they're going to take high doses. So what I say to doctors is your patient that you prescribe the benzodiazepines to will tell you by what he or she does with the medicine for the alcoholics and the drug addicts, uh, benzodiazepines are booze in a pill. Uh, and just like with booze, uh, just like with the, uh, uh, with the booze, you don't have social drinkers who have alcohol use disorders. They don't do three drinks a week. Uh, that doesn't what happened. What do they do with the alcohol? They do it. Well, they do just the same with the benzodiazepines. 
Yeah, and it, and it's a it, benzodiazepines use disorder is very scary, right? And just like you said, Doctor Dupont, I'm patients in the emergency department. They're taking forty pills a day. Yes, of course. And having a terrible amount of time. Just yesterday, I was working, and I had a guy who had a substance use disorder, and he bought a, a Xanax tablet, a, a Zanzibar two milligrams off the street, and almost died because yeah. it had no benzo in it. It's all it's counterfeit fentanyl, and yes. so. Um, so people are getting tricked and even dying from an opiate or overdose by well, buying they think they're fake prescriptions. It, yes. Yeah, but, but the, the take the two milligram tablet is so unusual. I mean, that is really in my practice. I've never had a patient take a two milligram tablet. It's very, it's very uh, unusual. And the other thing about fentanyl, you mentioned that, you know, people think that the, the drug dealers are putting that fentanyl in there to kill people. They don't want to kill the people. They they just want the people to buy it. And the reason they put that in there is because the people like it. Now, some of them die. That's true. Uh, but the drug dealers. Part of the business. Want, yeah. <laughs> they, they, but, but they do put it in all kinds of things. And people think they do it for malicious. No, it's just business from their point of view. It's much cheaper than heroin to put the fentanyl in there. And they put it in there and the person buys it like that. He's going to sell more of those because he put that in there. And, you know, we did, I didn't mean to start this discussion on benzodiazepine, but I can't help myself. One of the things that, one of the things that we, um, we did locally that I'm proud of and, and several other health plans have gone is what we, I call closing the faucet from the top. So the health plan took Xanax two milligrams off the formulary. Good. They were very afraid of doing that because they thought patients are going to complain and they care about their star ratings, yeah. but nothing happened except for less Xanax prescriptions and yeah. with no complaints. So you're, yeah. there are things we could do. But let's get back to Danelle's question. Uh, Danelle yeah. is a really an amazing prevention specialist in Butte County who's been doing such good things for her community. Um, but she's worried about the social norms around you. Um, and she's worried about is it a rite of passage? Is it just experiments? Is it not dangerous? And I know that you are the perfect person and you've really spent a lot of time thinking and writing about this. So is it is it true? Is drugs a rite of passage? Well, first of all, what are drugs? Drugs are chemicals that super stimulate brain reward. They hijack the brain's reward system. Uh, they're biological. People take these drugs not out of some fad or something because of the biology of the drugs. They do produce brain reward. So that, that's a reality to the drugs, a biological reality. The most, what, one of the most pernicious things in our society is the definition of adolescence as a time to experiment, to learn for yourself. And you think about experimenting with drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, well, what do you think about that? You know, what, what, what happens, which is very interesting, I, I use the analogy. What do you think would happen if you said it's the right thing for kids to experiment with uh, different behaviors? That's the time for adolescents to do that. And let's say they experimented with not wearing a seatbelt in a car. What would happen if they experimented with that? Well, what would happen is they'd find it was no problem. They would do it day after day with no seatbelt. Nothing would happen to them. They'd talk to their friends. Nothing happened to their friends. They'd feel perfectly safe. They wouldn't. They aren't safe, but they would feel that way uh, because the the uh, consequences are not immediate and they're not predictable. 
uh, to that. Well, that's what happens with kids with drugs. When you say they're going to experiment with alcohol, they're going to experiment with drugs. They're going to find that they can do it and their friends can do it and nothing bad happens to them. And all these people who have the scare tactics are wrong. Uh, and then they end up crashed uh, like with the seatbelts. So the, the problem is the society that normalizes the concept of experimenting with drugs. Th that is an experiment that is a fool's experiment because many people will like it. And, it, and the more they like it, the more trouble they're going to have with it. So we've got to denormalize the concept that it's normal for youth, youth to experiment with drugs. Most people get the idea that experimenting with cigarettes is not a great idea, uh, but they don't get it about alcohol and they don't get it about marijuana. Uh, but those are the same thing. So to me, the simple answer for health is not kids not to use any drugs at all because of the vulnerability of the adolescent brain, which is very unique vulnerability. When people start using drugs in adolescence, they have much more likelihood of having serious problems when they start in adulthood. So, and all of those drugs are illegal for kids, every single one of them, alcohol, marijuana included. For uh, a good reason. <laughs> yeah, for a good reason. It's not to punish kids, it's to protect kids. Right. Uh, and we need to be able to say it. But adults get very mixed up about that. Uh, and so what, what I think and what uh, our, our, your questioner said that, that's really important is, is that, that, that they, there's a, a, a culture that tolerates or even encourages the experimenting with drugs. Uh, and then, then they get uh, the kids come together who do that. They reinforce each other behavior and the biology makes it hard for them to stop. Uh, what drugs do is they reinforce the use. So you get uh, uh, the prior prioritize the continued drug use because of the brain and the brain, the hijacked brain uh, tells them that the problems aren't there. They deny the problems. And that's what addiction is all about is those two things is the prioritizing of the use uh, and, and the uh, 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 feeling like they, 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 they need that and they, they deny the problems come up about it. Uh, and that's hard to change. And, and what she was asking about is the kids get into a culture of using it they lie to their parents about their drug use. They minimize the drug and alcohol use. And you get a very serious problem with that. Now, it's, this is a big problem. But what most people do not understand is that youth in America are on a long-term trend to use less and less and less drugs. And that has been going on since the, mid, the, the peak adolescent drug use was 1980. Since then, there's been a tremendous decline in the use of drugs by young people uh, in the United States, and it's been steady. And one of the things that our research, my research has shown, is that the percentage of kids, high school seniors, they take up an age, high school seniors, uh, who don't use any drugs at all, no drugs, no alcohol, uh, no nicotine, including vaping, uh, no marijuana, and no other drugs. So those are completely drug-free kids. At a high, by high school senior year in 1983, that was 3% of high school seniors, 3%. So 97% of high school seniors had used a drug uh, in, the, in, uh, 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 in, that, in that time of their lifetimes. Now that's 31% have never in their lifetimes used. You think about that. That's three to 31 over the course of just short of 40 years. And if you ask the question, what percentage used any drug, including alcohol and marijuana, in the last 30 days, that was 16% in 1983, and now it's 59%. So, so that, that's a long-term trend of kids. Now, 
uh, as uh, your your friend question, uh, there's still a lot of kids who are using, and it's a very serious problem. I'm not minimizing that, but people don't realize that there is a long-term trend. Here's another statistic: uh, in 1983, uh, the percentage of kids, uh, high school seniors, who had used a drink in the last 30 days, any drink, was 73 percent. Now it's 29%. Well, I think it's kudos to Danell and professionals out there to keep pounding the message. Um, mm. And it's made a difference here. You've reported a statistical difference in, in, in that messaging. Yes, and that's right. And and uh, bless her for what she's doing. Uh, but she's going to focus a lot, I think, on the kids who have, have already used. Uh, and that's, that's, a, that's a tough uh, group to work with. Uh, kids, kids are difficult in terms of treatment. Uh, and uh, it, it's difficult because the kids who get involved in the drugs don't want to stop, obviously, uh, in that. At least I think she's folks often focused with the kids who have made that decision. And that spreads, that's contagious. So the friends around them are likely to get into that too. Uh, and uh, so they get uh, isolated uh, more isolated groups of people who are using and having problems. And that's associated with poor uh, academic performance. It's uh, associated with uh, dropping out of school, not finishing school. Uh, it has everything that's bad about for kids is higher in the people who are using drugs and the people who are not. Yeah. And I think, you know, you and I agree there's prevention and then there's treatment. But if we put a lot more effort on prevention, we'd have a lot easier time down the road. I had a patient last night when I worked um, and he had horrible abdominal pain and throwing up. And I ended up diagnosing him with cannabis hyperemesis syndrome or scrometing. Um, my favorite diagnosis, by the way. Uh, sure. But, <laughs> and I, I asked him when he started using, and he said 11 years old. He was right. using marijuana, smoking it a lot, like in the grams. And I asked, are you addicted? He said, oh, no, I'm not addicted. Uh, can you stop? Well, I don't want to stop because my life is too stressful. I need it. Yeah. So, right? There's a, a denial there. Well, but it's also um, that he justifies it as a quasi-medicine. Yeah. And, and what he's treating is withdrawal. That's the disease right. he's treating. Uh, because he feels sick when he stops. Uh, it's, it's very, I call marijuana the careless drug. You just don't care about things uh, with marijuana. And I bet this guy doesn't care about a lot of things uh, except his smoking the marijuana. Uh, and it's very, very sad. Uh, his illness, this hyperemesis, is a blessing to him. Uh, it's a wake-up call. Now, whether he gets the message is another question, but it is a wake-up call uh, for him to, to think about that. Absolutely. Well, right. you tell me about it. Is it likely that if he goes back to using, he'll have that again? Well, will it, could he expect that to happen or not? The cure for cannabis hyperemesis is stopping using yes, marijuana, but it could take a while. It could take um, a few weeks or even a month for that, you know, depending on how severe you mean the, to the stop disease. or for the hyperemesis to for stop? For the hyperemesis disease to stop. Even after he stops the marijuana. Yeah. yeah. And there are even people who've, who've died from that. Yes. Um, but it, it's it's a disease of addiction. Just like you eloquently said, it's the, the, the chasing the drug and the denial that it's a problem. The priority yeah. of use and the denial of use and that he's a you know perfect example. That, and, and I don't think he doesn't care about anything, but it's marijuana is the priority yeah. and denial that there's, there's a problem. Yeah. 
And, um, and that's why somebody outside the addicted person often has to do something. Uh, parents, teachers, pediatricians, somebody needs to, or more than one person needs to intervene, get him drug tested so, so that uh, they'll know whether he's uh, taking the marijuana or not and insist on he not stopping. Uh, that's often uh, uh, essential to help people stop. Mm-hmm. So looking at youth again um, and Danelle's social norms, there was rite of passage where, you know, we would argue that it's not a rite of passage and that the majority of kids don't use drugs. We right. shouldn't concentrate on the few that do as a rite of passage. Let's concentrate on the many that don't. Right. Um, experimenting with drugs. You know, there's a, a, a definition I, I read in um, or learned in my textbook I was studying for my addiction medicine boards that if you use six times or less, that's considered experimenting. But if it's more than six, then now you may have a DSM five diagnosis of a problem. Um, so I, you told, taught me that that was very useful. Thank you. I never <laughs> it, thought yeah. about it like that. It's in one of the textbook. And as I was studying, you know, I picked that up and I thought that, Oh, that's useful. So how many times have you ever used marijuana? Just one time. It's like, okay, now that, that was an experiment, but you're yeah. using now more than six times. And now we're, now we got a problem. Well, you um, hope that they did when he used it that one time, he didn't like it. Uh, the, you know, the problem is if he does like it, there's where the problem is. Right. And we saw that with the opioid epidemic. Um, yeah. When we had kids uh, who get their wisdom teeth pulled, usually at that susceptible age when the brain is growing. And, you know, you could pull out a whole, you know, a hundred wisdom teeth. And, you know, they get a prescription for oxycodone and, you know, nothing happens. But for every hundred, and I don't know the right number, if it's two or three who are like, oh my God, and they're gene is triggered for addiction. And, and that's where the addiction starts. And the thing is, you don't know who's going to um, fall in that path and who isn't it. It's, you know, you can't decide. And so for the protection of the population, better not to give oxy for wisdom yes. teeth extractions, right? I, I think um, that makes sense, especially to kids. Or, but really, it, 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 it's likely to be a kid who's already used drugs who has that experience. It, it's not likely that, that you get a kid because they've been exposed to alcohol and marijuana before they had their wisdom teeth out. Uh, the, the most likely person to get, take off with that oxycodone uh, is the one like your one guy who started marijuana use at 11. Uh, that really primes the brain for that experience. But it is true that sometimes people who have no prior history fall in love with the first dose. That does right. happen. There's always the first uh, and, time for whether it's alcohol or marijuana or whatever. A, there's a first time. And, and if, you, if you really like it a lot, uh, it can be a, 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 very, a very serious problem. But it is not common. Most people who get prescribed the opioids uh, do not uh, have a, a brings a bell for them. It doesn't make them excited. It doesn't make them want to use other drugs. And that's, that's, a, that's a relatively, it, it's, there are many people because they're so widely used but it's a small percentage of them uh, who are going to do that. And most of them who will do that with a prescription have a history of alcohol and other drug use before that. And not all. Uh, it is, it is, there is a risk there. And I think that even in, in terms of just being humane, I think you can help people deal with pain in all kinds of situations, including that uh, without an opiate. I think that uh, to presume that somebody who's got pain has to have an opiate is 
not not approaching it in the right way. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And I have a whole episode uh, dedicated to Alto, alternatives to opioids that give much better pain relief with no oh. opioids. You know, oh, yeah. if you, you know, uh, trigger point injections and anesthetics and things, you know, even for broken bones, you can get zero pain with no opioids with with that kind of technique. And, and um, so, yeah, there's a lot of hope there. You know, there's uh, another thing that comes from my anxiety disorders experience uh, is to, to think about what does the pain mean to the person? And I think there's a lot of work can be done with what does the pain mean? A lot of people have a lot of pain and are able to do it without medication at all. Uh, and I think that, 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 that when we get people afraid of pain uh, uh, and, uh, uh, hysterical about pain. Uh, that's a problem. That's a problem. There are some conditions like that, but that where there, you can't deal with it. But I think a lot of the idea that somehow pain itself has got to be stopped, I think is not a helpful idea, uh, especially like something like tooth extraction. That, that pain is going to go away. That's a benign pain. It's not like you're dying of cancer, that it's just going to get worse over time. It's very short term uh, in that. And I, I think to, to uh, get overly, uh, I don't know what, eager or, or committed to taking away the pain uh, is not, not, not in the patient's interest. Right. Well, probably fear of not just pain, but any type of void in your life is probably what gets people to yeah. get to use, um, to use drugs. You, you can use drugs because you're happy, not just because you're sad. I mean, the drugs will work for happy people if they'll use them. Yeah. Um, and then you did a great job kind of explaining the dangers of drugs. Like, oh, you're not wearing your seatbelt. Maybe you don't feel um, that there's a danger now, but then, uh, but then it can hit you. And I think what's made all drugs so much uh, more dangerous now is fentanyl. And we've found the fentanyl, like we talked about in the Xanax tablets, but in cocaine and methamphetamine, heroin, we've even found it in vaping products. Mm. So really we're advocating for naloxone for anybody who uses drugs, kind of like an EpiPen for anybody who um, has allergies, except an EpiPen you could use on yourself and naloxone, you need someone nearby to to help if you've passed you. out, you can't do it. That's yeah, right. That's, that's right. It's a, a little bit, a little different. Makes yeah. it harder. Um, the thing but, about the EpiPen and and the uh, uh, analogy for the naloxone is it really, if you've had to treat somebody for an opiate uh, uh, overdose with naloxone, that's a sign you need to intervene. Uh, to just refer them to treatment is not going to be enough. You're going to have to really grab a hold of that person because uh, you know the the, the co most common reaction to uh, resuscitation is to have withdrawal symptoms and want to go out and get more drugs it, it's a problem it's, it is a problem and you're absolutely right and we we're not doing probably a good or i know we're not doing a good enough job on that the the best um uh interventions that i've heard of is in queens county maryland where uh, if you call 911 and the dispatcher hears that it's an overdose, they send an ambulance, but they also send a peer counselor yeah. to the waiting room of the emergency department that stays there and and does, you know, intervenes in that in that way. And is I it, is that the that peer counseling is somebody who's had a uh, drug problem themselves? 
whoever, I mean, they don't have to be someone with a, but, but peer counselors in, in treatment and, and recovery. And, you know, they have proper training and dealing with the emergency department because, you know, dealing with the staff and how to navigate that is an right. art in itself. Um, but, but they're there for that patient who overdosed to create that connection because you're right. Most of the time will be your overdose. Don't do that. Here's a prescription for naloxone. And um, maybe if you meet criteria, here's some suboxone and make an appointment in three days, please show up yeah. at XYZ. And that's not always. Uh, yeah. they, I'd, I'd love a little to get more hand-holding. I'd like to get the family involved in those kind of things. You know, the family often doesn't know that the person has had an overdose. Uh, and uh, I think the more we can be uh, open with... Uh, with people about uh, their drug uh, use and, and, and people around them, the better it is for them. Uh, keeping it a secret is uh, uh, dangerous. Yeah, it's a problem. And a lot of people have been kind of disenfranchised from the family because of the drug use yeah. by the time they get to me. Um, so we talked about how deadly fentanyl is and you um, wrote an article and talked about fentanyl as the last demon drug. Um, and, uh, wonder if you would share about that. I like that. The, the, the article though. title is fentanyl as sentinel. <laughs> that fentanyl is a warning of where we're going with our drugs in this mm -hmm. country. We started with drugs that were agricultural. So marijuana is grown. It's a plant. Uh, uh heroin is derived from opium, which is a poppy plant. Uh, coca, cocaine is from a coca bush. Uh, uh, the, these uh, alcohol is mostly from plant-based things. Uh, that's where the drugs started. Uh, but we have now developed the capacity to make synthetic drugs that have the same effects as these drugs that don't come from any plant. They come from a laboratory. That's what fentanyl is. Fentanyl has no uh, biological predecessor. You don't grow it in a farm. And it turns out that the, the synthetic drugs are much cheaper to make and are very powerful. And so, so fentanyl is taking over from heroin uh, and, and uh, 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 in, in the opioid market. And for that matter, from the prescription opioids. Uh, it's easier to get and cheaper. And it's cheaper than for them to make and sell uh, than heroin is. They don't have to deal with farmers and cart the stuff around and do all the development and everything. You can make fentanyl in a laboratory in your basement or in your garage. I mean, it's amazing how people can make uh, drugs now. And that's true for all the drugs. So the future of drugs is going to be, is, is told, told by fentanyl, and that is to move away from the agricultural things into purely synthetic drugs. And there are thousands of them. Uh, if you look at the agricultural drugs, it's a, you know, the list I gave you was a pretty short list. Uh, and it used to be that list pretty much covered most of the drug problems, but no more uh, because of that uh, development of the uh, uh, of the synthetic synthetic drugs. So that's the future. So fentanyl is a sentinel to show us where we're going and where we're going is to, to, uh, uh, to, to uh, uh, synthetic drugs. And also people think well, the drugs have got to come from China or they got to come from Mexico. No, they can be made right here in the United States. Uh, you know, and it's, it, it's a lot of money. The drug problem is funded by drug users. Illegal drug users in America pay $150 billion a year for drugs. That $150 billion fuels all the problem. 
Uh, and one of the statistics I use, Renit, is that the drug, the drug treatment in this country, all the drug treatment altogether, including alcohol, costs $34 billion. In other words, the drug users, many of whom are the poorest people in the country, uh, are spending $150 billion for drugs. With one-fifth of that, they could fund all the treatment. How much drug treatment is paid for by drug users? Essentially zero uh, in the country. The family pays, the government pays, health insurance pays, but the drug users don't pay for treatment. They pay for drugs. And what that does, that perspective, turns it back and, wait a minute, uh, there's this slavery is a voluntary slavery where people pay for it. That's what's going on. It's and actually even worse for that because the not only are they government's paying for treatment, government is paying for the drugs because yeah, well, those social security checks and disability oh, checks that's right. sure, that's and right. Medi-Cal, they're actually paying for the drugs. So the government's paying on both ends. Oh, now you, you <laughs> added something that I didn't think about, but you're absolutely right. That's yeah. absolutely right. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because, because the drug users prioritize the drugs over food. They, they prioritize our shelter. Yeah. Uh, that's what's happening with a hijacked brain. Uh, that, that, that next dollar is going to go to drugs. It's not going to go to food or shelter or anything else. So your, your solution to this, and you're, you're right about fentanyl, sentinel. I love that uh, analogy. And when I was at ONDCP, I got to see the, the mapping that they do from the sky aerially of uh, how they track cocaine because yes. the plant takes, it's a two-year cycle. So yeah. they could see it happening and they could track it happening. But in a lab with fentanyl, no, you can't see, you know, that's no. instant, quick. So you're right. That's going to be the trend, the old-fashioned agricultural. That's right. That's old-fashioned. Um, well, it's expensive. And, and the, and the new way is much cheaper. Um, so the solution you talk about is, yeah. is prevention and you're a huge prevention, um, advocate. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering if you are upset as I am about the movement in our country to normalize drug use. And I see people who say, Hey, I go to the bar to have a glass of wine. You know, I enjoy it. And why can't I just go to the bar and have a line of cocaine if I want to also? Yes. Well, you know, it's very interesting. You, you, you picked out the, the key idea here is the alcohol model. And that is absolutely the model on which the country is moving for all drugs. Uh, and uh, people have observed that many people use heroin. Many people use cocaine and nothing happens to them. They don't, it's, it's the equivalent of having the glass of wine. They don't. Nothing does happen to them. A lot of people are like that. Uh, now, it's very easy for them to slip off that and lose control. That's for sure. It's very dangerous. But there are people like that. And uh, when, you, when, when you think about using the alcohol model for other drugs, you got to remember you're talking about thousands of drugs. You're not just talking about marijuana. And the idea that we would make it commercially, openly available legally to, for any drug, then you realize what a nightmare that is. That is, a, that is a disaster for our society. And what happens is people discuss it just with marijuana. They don't, they don't notice that the same forces that are working on marijuana, this, this going in the door about uh, medicine. You, you used the example of the, the fellow who was using the marijuana and, and how it calmed him down. He felt better with that. That's right. That's a quasi-medical description of why he was using it. And that's true for all the drugs. Uh, they're like that. 
And, and where we're going, uh, where we're headed, whether we get there, I hope not, but where we're headed is to do that with everything. Uh, you warn the people, you know, uh, if you're going to use heroin or, or fentanyl, you may have a problem, but maybe you won't, and it's your responsibility. If you do that, the drugs are very powerful, and they will take over those brains, and we're going to have a tremendous uh, casualties, tremendous increase in casualties because of that, uh, doing that. Uh, but uh, it's difficult to get across to the people who are so excited about marijuana legalization, the fact that right behind them uh, right now are the hallucinogens, and behind that is, are the stimulants, which don't produce overdose death. Uh, and uh, th there's no end to that. Uh, right. of where that goes down, down that road. And I think the answer is we've got to have policies that limit the access to these drugs and that discourage the use in a very active way. That's why the issue about stigma is so important because stigma is, we all want to reduce stigma for the person. The person who's addicted is a good person with a bad problem. And we want to separate the person from the problem and help the person stop and become in recovery. But what happens with the talk about stigma is you destigmatize the drug use. And I don't want to do that. I want to stigmatize the drug use and destigmatize the user. Everybody I see who's using, everybody I see who uses drugs is a good person with a bad problem. And to normalize them using the drug that is killing them is not in their interest. I can't agree with you more and so excited to have you say that because, you know, I've, I've been, you know, with the National Academy of Medicine and they're really working on stigma and destigmatizing and, and there's very few voices at the table that say some stigma is good. Stigma for prevention is a tool. Of course, you know, look what we've done with cigarettes. Look at right, cigarettes, exactly. it's all about stigmatizing. Really, it's you want to smoke, you're gonna smell like an ashtray, you know. Yes, right, it's, it's all that about stigma. stigma, it's the whole thing is stigma, and right. it's working, and it works, right? And so, you but I think people have when they hear stigma, they can't separate the difference between stigma for prevention and stigma for the person who's using who needs help. Well, but I want to do stigma, a positive kind of stigma for the user too. And that is, I want to have that person know that I think this is really dumb and unhealthy uh, and that that person can become drug-free. And there are 21 million Americans who are in recovery. They can show the way, and lots of them from opioids and everything else. And, and what people say, where's your evidence? The evidence is there's 21 million people. Uh, they've had all kinds of things, terrible problems yeah. uh, there. And they come through the other side. Now, usually when they come through, they've had a crisis. Uh, something has happened. Something has intervened. Fate, illness, family, job, often the criminal justice system. Uh, is the turning point for people. But something has gotten that person by the throat and said, you can't do this anymore because the biology is to just keep doing it. That's great. I My, my prevention method, I think, is based on watching the prescription opioid problem, not yeah. the, all the opioids because fentanyl is an opioid, but looking at prescription opioid problem, there was a start and efficient and an ending. And we have the data of it because it all came from mostly yeah. from doctors. So we know how it started. It started by, hey, let's everybody use opiates. It's good for every pain. Nobody should be in pain. And it ended by um, really 
two-pronged approach. One is let's not give so many prescriptions to everybody in pain for the whole life, not, not have a new generation of Americans who are addicted. And then for those who already are on all these opioids, let's just manage them. We're not going to that was more of a harm reduction approach. It's like, yeah. we're, you know what, you are already on a bucket of medicines. I'll do my best to wean what I can. But but the focus and what ended the prescription opioid epidemic is front end, is prevention, not creating a new generation of Americans who are addicted. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the model if we want for any drug, yeah. you know, not, you know, prevention. Like they, you know, like they say, um, a, a pound of, of prevention is an ounce of prevention an ounce of prevention is worth it yes absolutely (laughs) yeah well you know what happened with the uh opioid epidemic was the uh doctor became a main source for opioids in the community Mm -hmm. uh and uh so they were all over the place they were uh uh lots and lots of them but you know the, the idea of taking your grandmother's uh uh, Oxycontin and uh, getting an opioid habit. Your grandmother's not likely to have enough to do that for very long. You could get started like that, but you've got to have mm-hmm. a steady supply. Now, if a doctor is writing a prescription for a steady supply, and you've got to also use a lot, uh, people who are addicted to opioids, uh, they escalate the dose. You don't you don't have, again, like what I was saying, the Xanax, they don't just take a little bit of it. Uh, if they're going to keep doing it, they're going to have very big doses. It's not so easy to get that uh, from a doctor. Uh, you know, they, not they, anymore. Not anymore. You know, there so were we pill mills that, that yeah. pill mills did that, but now it's hard. The doctors are feeling vulnerable to write these big prescriptions to people, mm-hmm. and that's good because you you want to do that. That's what happened in uh, in with the Harrison Narcotics Act. Before that happened, uh, the doctors were just giving out opioids. Heroin started in 1898 uh, from the Bayer Company, and it was seen as a as a uh, an antidote for the morphine problem, if you can imagine it. And it was over the counter. Heroin sounds like aspirin because it's the same company at the same time invented the two things. And they are the absolute poles of safe and harmful or dangerous drugs. Uh, But they came to the same place uh, at the same time. And Bayer thought, that uh, heroin would have a bigger market than bas- uh, than aspirin, so it came out one one year earlier uh, in that. But what what happened was we had a huge uh, medical based opioid problem, and that led to the Harrison Narcotics Act, uh, which separated a use of the opioids for pain in medicine from just widespread use. And that really did a good job of reducing the problem until the 1960s, uh, when it when it really took off again. Mm-hmm. I, I want to um, share with our listeners about your one choice uh, program, no alcohol, nicotine, marijuana, or any other drugs for reasons of health until age 21. Um, so you're saying that, that that's your, your premier, I think, prevention program. Is yeah. that right? It's not a prevention program. It's a prevention goal. And what I'm doing is trying to get every prevention program to adopt this as the standard. And people say, well, it's not realistic, you know, to to have that as a standard. Well, think about uh, having a standard for seatbelts. We have a standard to wear a seatbelt. Do we think everybody wears seatbelts? We know not everybody does, but everybody knows that's the standard. We all know that. Uh, And that's what I want to do with prevention. I understand that not everybody's going to do it, but I want to be sure everybody knows. It's like exercising. You exercise every day. 
uh, not eating sugar, drinking sugary drinks. Those are health standards. I just want this as a health standard. So it's not a program, it's a health standard. And we want to have every prevention program do that. What happens now is prevention is very unclear of what it is. What is being prevented? What is youth? What is a drug? All of those things are unclear. People will say, you know, is vaping a drug use or not? Well, I say yes, but, yes. but, it, but it gets confused to people about what they mean. So they'll use a term like drug-free without specifying what it means. And the one choice message is very specific. No alcohol, no nicotine, including vaping, uh, no marijuana, and no other drug until the age, it also talks about what youth is very unclear. It's 21. And that's because that's where the law is. So, so it's very clear. Dr. DuPont, can I push back on that 21? Because that's, yeah. a, that's a legal age. Yes. But, but you know better than anybody that the biological and scientific age is more like 25, 27. Yes, exactly. I'd so, love 25, but I can't hold on to 21. I would get, I don't know. I, I push back on that because I've met people who start at age 20, 21. And, and, um, and, oh, yeah. and, and I think that that, again, that's a legal age, but I mean, oh, if yeah. you're going to, if you're going to have a best practice model and, and this is your one choice, that's the gold standard. I would so, say the so it, gold should be, it should be zero for all ages. Is that what you're saying? No, I'd say it till the brain is done growing. Cause that's where the science 25. Is. Yeah. Push back. Hey, I'm signing up for your army. Yeah, I'd say I, I like I'd say yours. 25. And why are we following the legality? We're the scientists. Why don't we stick to the science? Cuz right? I'm having a hard time selling 21. I thought well, you were I trying mean, to argue me for 18. No, I'm arguing for 20. I'm for I, my I, own I, kids I'll it's 27. Up. 27. I, I'll go for 25. <laughs> and and I've heard programs and keep them alive until 25, you know, again, um, and, and yes, of course, there'll be people who don't want to do that. You won't have 100% compliance. But I think as a scientist and as a prevention expert, you should preach the gold standard. And if people want to dumb it down, you know, that's, you know, something 21 is better than nothing. I agree. But if you're going to preach a gold standard, I'd go for the gold standard. Dr. Lev, you've convinced me. <laughs> I agree with you. I'm going to change my, my line from now on after this program. I think that that's absolutely, absolutely right. The whole issue of adult drug use is a really tough problem. And what, what I notice is because I'm I'm I, I think about myself as being practical. And by focusing on just youth for this argument or this, this standard, uh, uh, I got the law that, that's there, and it's it's uh, it's a it's a line that I can defend. But once you go past 21, then it's a much harder sell uh, to do that uh, about about everything uh, that's going on. But I, the principle is exactly right. The principle is right all ages. And, yeah. And so let it, the lawyers do the 21, but the scientists say 25, 27. I'm going to do it from now on. <laughs> now you'll get pushback. And this is the argument that I heard um, that, you know, abstinence is a bad policy. It doesn't work for sex. It's better to teach safe sex. So why should it work for drugs? Shouldn't we just be teaching safe drugs, you know? use fentanyl strips and naloxone and use. Well, first friends. of all, you know, the, the, the brain reward is there for two main functions, food and sex. Those are biological imperatives. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the brain is hardwired to promote those behaviors. 
And it's very interesting to look at eating and sex. And what you'll notice is people have a lot of problems with those two areas. You got uh, serious uh, sex addiction and all kinds of sex pathology that has to do with excesses there. You've got obesity is a major problem in the country because people are buying foods that are unhealthy and eating foods that are unhealthy. So there's a clear analogy between that. Another one that's, that's there is, uh, is gambling. Uh, which is in that category too, where you get a lot of people are gambling, it's okay, and other people have a problem. But all of that has to do with brain reward. And it turns out that managing brain reward is a challenge. You think about sex and how much our culture works on the issue of what's an acceptable sexual behavior and what isn't. Uh, you know, that's been a, an issue for thousands of years. Uh, to work that out and define those relationships and what are the consequences of various things. Managing brain reward is not simple. Uh, it really isn't. And when you get a chemical in there that's more powerful than sex or eating, uh, you, you, you uh, divert uh, the, uh, the biology uh, into, a, into a, a, a deadly blind alley. And it, it also could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you say, well, we're just going to teach safe drug use, then you'll, you're again, normalizing drug use instead of speaking. Normalizing adult drug use, you mean? Um, yeah. Or even for kids. No, I've heard people say for kids, just like the kids are going to have sex. So you shouldn't be teaching abstinence. You, kids are going to use drugs. You shouldn't be teaching abstinence. Yeah. That's, that's what the. No. And, and that's why the word abstinence can be a problem uh, because it so quickly gets in that. But sex is something that is desirable biologically. I mean, it, it really is, a, uh, uh, it's not just normal, it's essential to the species uh, right. sex is. Uh, and so the, the question about sex is not uh, whether you do it or don't, uh, it's about uh, what the social consequences are and what the personal consequences are for the sexual behavior. That's not true for drugs. Uh, oh, drugs are not a, a biological uh, thing at all. Uh, you know, it's interesting also that humans are the only animals that have a drug problem because no animal in nature has ever had access to these drugs. Uh, uh, you know, uh, some kinds of animals will have some alcohol that ferments uh, somewhere, but they can't keep doing it. Uh, and and uh, so there's no there's no animal model. There's no historical model other than humans uh, for the drugs. And the people have had a lot of problems with drugs ever since the first time they got to using the drugs. And it used to be that all the drugs were used orally. You know, the uh, uh, marijuana was used orally. The first time people smoked drugs was uh, after the discovery of, uh, by the Europeans and the Asians of the New World, where the Indians had smoked the uh, tobacco. Uh, so all the marijuana was taken orally before. Well, that's a big difference to use it orally versus inject shooting, I mean, uh, versus smoking, smoking and also injecting uh, in terms of, because that change, it changes the uh, biology also by making the, the uh, rise in the blood level in the brain more rapid, and that's re more reinforcing than a slow uh, 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 rise of the, of the level in the blood. That's great. You just armed me with good ammo, the biology. Again, back to the science. It's the biology and the science that, you know, sex is biological, but using drugs isn't. I love that. Yeah. I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, so we, we talked kind of about marijuana and there's all this controversy. Is marijuana is marijuana a gateway drug? Does it prime your brain for for drugs? 
Well, let me tell you about that. I, I wrote a book called Gateway Drugs. Wow. So uh, <laughs> I'm into this gateway drug thing. It's very interesting to me that, that the uh, academic world picked up on the gateway drugs in terms of it being biology. And I want to tell you that when I used the term, it had nothing to do with biology. It was just an observation that the pattern was there. And to say that one drug is a gateway, another one isn't, is wrong. But what I now know, or at least now believe, for kids, there are three gateway drugs, alcohol, nicotine, and marijuana. It doesn't matter which they use first. It doesn't, it, and it's not biologically determined. It's somehow you do, you do it. They like to use drugs and people will like to use it and they'll use more. But those three drugs dominate the picture of youth uh, using drugs. And I don't want to get into which they use first. I don't think it matters which they use first. I don't know why anybody would care which they use first. I never cared. And so this whole idea about the biology, which I think is completely nuts, uh, is that uh, it, it primes the brain. But the reality is that when you're used to using chemicals to, to affect brain reward, you're learning something that's going to have a, a lesson for you for all drugs. That's why you get the polydrug stuff. Uh, that's going on. The other thing that is very interesting to me is why do people use so many drugs at the same time? You're in, in your emergency room. You rarely see somebody who's just got one drug. No, uh, almost never. Almost never. Exactly. And I call it M&Ms. M&Ms, marijuana and meth, meth and methadone. Just, yeah. Well, and I but, think but, we, it, but it's all, well, but, but marijuana and alcohol mm -hmm. uh, is, that's the main thing for driving uh, is to put those two together. It, 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 they don't really have to have M, uh, but they go together. And the question is why? And uh, I wrote a paper that's just been published uh, about this, about the polydrug thing. And one of the things that's very interesting is the drug users, the drug users themselves, have been conducting a massive experiment on brain reward. They are doing studies at the edge of lethality that no IRB would ever permit. And they, what they have discovered is that, that when they combine drugs, they get better results, better, uh, they like it better than mm -hmm. just doing one. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's because there's a negative part to one and they have a positive with the other. But mostly I think it's the, it's the brain reward. And researchers have not studied it. And I've talked to the researchers about why don't they do it? And I'll tell you why they don't do too it. Too dangerous. Well, it's too dangerous for one thing, but there's another reason. There is no formula. You know, if you set up an IRB and you want to do it, first of all, you're not going to be at the edge of lethality. But second of all, the combinations that you see are so numerous. Which comes first when you're shooting it and using it? Uh, uh, how much of the dose of this and how much of the dose of that? It would be hard to define a research project that would show the kind of variety uh, that goes on and what people are doing. So my argument is that that this is a very important uh, research project and they're they're voting with their money uh, of what they're doing. They're telling you by their behavior how the biology works and it is to mix the drugs. It's yeah. not, the simple thing you'd say is, well, if you knew how to get more high, just take more of drug A. They don't do that. They add drug B and drug C and drug D to it. They don't just raise one uh, like that. And that's because they like those exper that experience better. 
So should we not use the word gateway or st it's still applicable? Well, I, I like it. If you're going to have all three of them, I like it. I, yeah. I'm happy okay. be, because you're not going to see very many people who use other drugs that haven't first used alcohol, nicotine, and marijuana. Th those so dominate the picture. Yeah. Uh, to start with something else would be very unusual. And, you, you might and now so we're seeing so many people who overdose with fentanyl. When I see patients, I always ask them, what's the first drug that you've ever used? And again, like this guy at 11, 11 years old, it'd be 11, 12 years old and invariably marijuana, maybe alcohol, but that's, yeah. Yes. They didn't, they didn't and, go, and no they longer didn't... cigarettes. Cigarettes are way right. down in you. Because they've been stigmatized. <laughs> yes, exactly. You're exactly right. Uh, but the other thing is that is really important to say, you mentioned that you can start using alcohol at 25 and become an alcoholic. That's true. But, but when you start it's drugs, less. It's less. Way it's less. Way it's, less. It's, you know, it's like a tenth the risk uh, yeah. of, of it. So the risk is very low. But when you go down the other direction, it goes way up. And 11 is the worst. Right. I mean, that's the worst uh, kind of effects. And I've got some nice graphs that show the, the likelihood, if you first use at a certain age, what's the likelihood of that, become, that person having a substance use disorder at a later time? And if right. you look at the 11-year-olds, it'll be 60%. If you look at 12-year-olds, it'll be 52%. Uh, you look at 13 year olds, it'll be 45%. It goes down until the, the uh, uh, at 20, 25, 21 and more is the state that I've looked at. It's going to be like four or 5%. So there's a huge differences. Huge difference. Just and on I the think basis of when they first Ida's used. statistic now that they're using is if someone uses below the age of developing brain, your chances of developing uh, a substance disorder is four to seven times more than if I started using at, oh at yes absolutely age. that's right yeah. that, that, that's the kind of number that's right and really that's the prevention goal if we can have one choice until age 25 or 27 um, <laughs> um, then we would be able to decrease substance oh, disorders tremendously. tremendously not zero right but we would make a uh, change and and the proof is that we did this with opioids. We just did this with prescription opioids, and we yeah. we made we we fixed that problem. Yeah. Not perfect, yeah. but we really did. Yeah. Um, and that and that's example. And and tobacco. Yes. Um, and yeah. Tobacco is a, is a tremendous example. But it's interesting to me how that what really changed the tobacco uh, experience was uh, the the. Uh, campaigns against it, uh, the truth campaign and the other things where we really got people organized uh, around uh, going after those, uh, you know, they became a very small percentage of the youth and being able to go after them in more effective ways. I think that's a, a model we could use for uh, all the other drugs uh, if we would be willing to do it. Yeah. And we got Hollywood involved uh -huh. um, to help with that. Um, and uh, it'd be nice if they'd they'd pitch in for this as well. Absolutely. Um, I have a a project that I'm working on. I want to share it with you in, sure. in for San Diego and California. See what you think of it. Um, it 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 came from all the patients that we're seeing that are overdosing on um, fentanyl, and yeah. yet in the hospital, very few hospitals actually test for fentanyl because fentanyl is a synthetic drug. It doesn't yeah. show up on an opioid drug screen. Yeah. Um, and so if there are some model hospitals that include fentanyl as a universal and automatic test. Anytime you order a, a drug screen at a hospital because you're 
you care about whether the patient had THC or cocaine or PCP or whatever, or meth, then you should equally care about fentanyl even more because our deaths have doubled. Um, so to make fentanyl testing automatic and universal anytime a drug test is ordered in the hospital. And that's available today, but it's just not happening. And uh, so we have a, a project in San Diego, all 24 hospitals. We surveyed all of them and found out that only four out of 24 are doing it now with the goal of, of having all of them follow that model within, I don't, I don't know if a year is too ambitious. Yeah. Um, but we also have a, a law that we hope to pitch an author to, to make that a Calif California wide, to make um, anytime a drug screen is ordered in a hospital, um, that fentanyl is universally and automatically included. Well, I like that idea. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. You know, drug testing is interesting. Uh, the the uh, standard uh, uses a, an immunoassay uh, approach. And so it's one drug at a time. Uh, and it, it's there, there's a cost when you add other drugs. And in the days when there, people were using very few drugs, it was pretty easy to do drug testing with five or six drugs. Uh, you would get that. But now when people use a hundred different drugs, it's difficult. You add fentanyl, but there are all kinds of fentanyls. It's not just one fentanyl anymore. That's right. Uh, and, and it goes on and on and on like that. The one thing that's kind of interesting, though, is that there are not very many people uh, who use uh, the, the less commonly used drugs, who don't also use the commonly used drugs. So if, if all you want to do, know is whether they're using drugs or not, you don't really have to get the last drug on it if you use any that's a positive. Now in the ER, it's a little different, uh, but how much difference does it make in terms of your treatment? What so it depends using? on your, yeah, it depends on your question. If it's like, should you get, if, do you have a substance use disorder? Do you need treatment? Yeah, maybe you don't need that. But with fentanyl, it's a game changer because of the lethality. If I tell you that that Xanax pill you took was not Xanax, it's fentanyl, it doesn't just help you. It tells me as a doctor, tells you as a patient, it tells you what, where is the rest of the bag of these pills that could kill yeah. other people. You need to tell your, tell your friends, find that bag, get rid of it. And that yeah. dealer is selling you, you know, he, he's a murderer. He's not yeah. just a drug dealer. And now some naloxone. I mean, that drug test could have been negative for opiates. I wouldn't even think of naloxone, but now, now I need to give you naloxone and, you know, finally the connection for treatment. Did you, did you know this fellow was using drugs at all or you didn't, you just no, had he, somebody with, you know, you have a sense, you don't, no, but, but, for sure. but when he, he must have been found somewhere or something. What, yeah, how, yeah, they're found down in the car, unconscious, and a bystander comes and calls nine one one and save their life. Yeah. I actually, he's a very interesting case, the Xanax guy, because I would expect him to be dead after one Xanax, because that's just which is fake Xanax, which is fentanyl. He he should have been dead, and I think what saved him is he was on Suboxone, <sighs> and that some of that. Naloxone was in his system, and that's why they got him you. back. Mm -hmm. That's really a that's why, I think that that's why he lived. Story, yeah. but when that guy came in unconscious, would, uh, what would it take for you to use uh, uh, naloxone? Uh, well, hopefully they he gets it in the field. He got it in the field before it comes. He came to so me. So before there was ever a drug test, he got it. And did he yeah. respond to it? Yeah. Otherwise, he wouldn't. He'd be at the morgue instead of with me. But see, now that, that just clinically, it, it didn't change the clinical course to know that it was fentanyl. 
I don't know, but it's changed the prevention course for the future. That's right. You want to know that information. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I just saved, I didn't just save his life. Now I saved yeah. all his buddies and whoever else may be getting yeah. to that. Right. As it's a public health and a prevention. Well, but, but I don't know what his buddies. It'd be interesting to see what he's, what he says about his buddies, because when a drug dealer sells a lethal drug, the drug users go to that dealer, not away from them. Well, it depends where they got it from. Like, this guy said, oh, no, no, it's just one pill. I don't have any. But I've had other people. It's like, well, you know, I saw this baggie fall out of someone's car and now I have, you know, 20 of them. And I Googled it and it said that this was hydrocodone. So I wanted to use it after my cocaine high. And there's still a bag left at home. And now this guy almost died and he's yeah. going to get rid of that and make sure his friends don't use it. Yeah. No, that's right. That's that's good. That's good. But I think the focus on fentanyl that you have is 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 very good, and it also has a uh, uh, I don't know it it catches people's attention, and I think that's that's good yeah. also. And the silver lining in the opioid epidemic is that it got uh, for the first time in history the the medical community at large involved with the issue of drugs because otherwise it used to be a very separate thing. Well, those are drug addicts. That's a different part. That's not like a different part of the body. Even, you know, most physicians well, that's very interesting. don't yes. address it, but, but the silver lining is now with opioids where the doctors for a time were the drug dealers. They've <laughs> now stepped up to the plate and, and, and are involved in solutions and solutions for opioids, but now solutions for other drugs. A, a point that I've made is that uh, the COVID is very bad, but we've got another epidemic, and that is the drug epidemic that was here and killing people before Absolutely. COVID, and it's going to keep killing people after COVID is gone. Uh, and to think about it as an epidemic, it hasn't always been there. Uh, this is something that is uh, new in the history of the world. Now, it's not new this year. It didn't start in 2019, but it's still very dramatic. Uh, and it kills a lot of people, 81,000 last year. Terrible. And the other project, just one, I just kind of want to see your feedback on this, because if this is a new, it would be a new kind of thing. But, um, you know, I'm I'm in California, where marijuana has long been legal anyway, and sales are up uh, astronomically now, especially during the pandemic. And, and uh, it's an essential business, you know, you can't go to church and pray, and you can't go to the gym and exercise, but you can buy your pot. Um, <laughs> but th that just that just got me more business in the emergency department. Of course and it does. And I see things that you may not even realize besides psychosis and mental health and anxiety and, and, and things like that. We see GI bleed, internal bleeding. Why? Because these cannabis products interact with people's, um, you know, blood thinner medications and those type of interactions. So this proposal is to ask pharmacies to label medications, your Coumadin, your Effient, your anxiety medicines, your opioids, to say don't use with marijuana and, and label it just like don't use with alcohol or use with yeah. milk, you know, so to, to you know, consumer protection and, and also help people realize that this is not a free-for-all, good-for-everything kind of drug. Absolutely, yes. Well, a harmless drug is the way people think about it, and right. it's not harmless. It, it, uh, when you affect the brain the way that does, there's, there's a very big risks that come with that, right. including motivation. So final advice for Danelle Campbell, who had this question for us today. 
<laughs> well, I want to I want to say to Danelle, uh, you're doing God's work. Uh, I mean, I think that's uh, that's wonderful what you're doing, uh, and uh, the, the the goal with all those kids is to help them protect their brains from the from the drugs, and the part you're protecting them from is falling in love with it. It's 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 uh, losing control and having all the problems that go with addiction, and uh, I think the best way to do that is with other kids uh, who have not used or, or stopped using uh, and get them to speak up. Uh, and I think that that's good. And also whatever you can do to get families and other people uh, everywhere where those kids go, pediatricians, everybody uh, needs to be involved in helping those kids uh, identify this as a unhealthy behavior and, uh, uh, and 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 uh, do something about it. The other thing I would say that I haven't said is that I am a big uh, fan of the 12 steps of AA and NA. Uh, and I think that if you've got a drug or alcohol problem or you know somebody who does, you can't do anything better than to get them to go to those meetings. Uh, and not just a couple of meetings, but go to 90 meetings in 90 days, get a sponsor, work the program. Uh, that's a, that's a, an American contribution to world culture. It started in 1935 in Akron, Ohio. Uh, and it is absolutely wonderful. Uh, I say, you know, I'm not going to be to my addicted patients. I won't be there at 3 a.m. when you have a problem, but your AA sponsor will be and your other AA people will be there. Uh, I think it's just a great thing. And for everybody else, uh, I think go to some open meetings so you see what's going on there. You can watch the miracle uh, by going to an open meeting. It's a, it's a great thing. And there are also uh, other self-help groups too, uh, 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 support groups that you can try. Uh, but, uh, but AA and NA are something really special. Uh, and usually when you get, oftentimes when you've got somebody who's in recovery, uh, the uh, AA and NA have played a very important part in it. And I say that not as a member of the, any of those fellowships, but having learned the respect for my own practice. And the people who've gone through those 12 steps are just better human beings and people you want to be around who have gone through that. And that's a really process. important point. There's it's something so more amazing. with a drug addicted person than using drugs. They've got a yeah. lot of other problems. And there's something good about people in recovery in addition to their not using. And that is the character corrupting experience of the drugs and the character ennobling experience of recovery. Yes, it's really amazing. So, Danelle, I just want to really thank you for your question and support. And I know that you have an amazing amount of um, passion for your work and success. I love the videos. She makes amazing creative videos that really target youth. So I really thank you for your service. You have taught me a lot over the years. And um, I hope that you and I know that you will continue to do amazing work for your community and, and sharing you know, with the rest of America. And and Dr. Um, DuPont, what an amazing honor to have you here and have this fun conversation. I learn from you. Um, you're, you know, you're a mentor um, to me, to, to a lot of people. And I'm really inspired uh, by you for your work in addiction, what you've done with your career, what you continue to do and how, you know, up to date um, you are and everything and, and uh, really a thought leader in this space. And uh, very cool. I think you, thank you for the fun of this <laughs> and for what I've learned from you. I'm walking out of here a different man than came into this. And I Aww. thank you for that. A better man. <laughs> Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oneet Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths. Thank you.